doing in my car says good morning to me. It's more than I've done. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing? Going swimming. Myself and my friend Keelan go sea swimming in Wicklow very early in the morning. And a few days ago, we convinced Paul to come with us. Well, they convinced me to go to Greystones. They didn't convince me to get in the water. I hate water. <laughs> you hate water? Yeah. Do you like the coast? I like the coastal plants. That's about it. So many people ask us about coastal plants because... We went at about 7am, a little bit later than usual, which means the place was teeming with people. Paul couldn't be turned. He wouldn't go in. I'm not a fan. <laughs> I thought I'd check out the plant life, though, on the beach and the nearby gardens instead. Why? Because this episode of Dirt is all about coastal gardening. So, you're going to see two hunky men slowly undress. Thank God it's non-visual. Well, we're standing here on the beach in Greystones. And it's, it's absolutely mobbed. There's people over here. There's people doing yoga behind us. Uh, the sun is shining. It's a nice kind of calm day. You can hear the uh, waves crashing. And you two are about to jump into that. Why? <laughs> good for what? the mind, good for the soul, good for the heart. You, can't, you can't come because you don't have a heart. And now they're jumping into it. They're totally bonkers. I, on the other hand, I'm going to make my way back up and have a quick look at what's actually growing. And before you think, oh, that's not relevant to me, I don't live beside the sea, it's actually really useful, all this info, for anyone who gardens in an exposed area, whether that be the roof garden of an apartment or anywhere else that gets a lot of wind. Later, we're going to take you on a tour of the most amazing plot in County Kerry, a coastal garden with plants you'd expect to see in the jungles of Brazil or Vietnam. It was a garden created on about 25 acres of wild coastal landscape by Peter O'Connor, an English woman who had no idea what she was getting herself into when she moved here in the 90s. She was told that Kerry had its own microclimate, which meant it was much warmer than the rest of the country and she'd only need a bikini in summer. <laughs> well... She's in her 38, 30 years later, despite all that. And her garden is a triumph. So while I get in the sea and Paul explores dry land, let's get to the podcast. Dirt, a Go Loud original. Coastal gardening, what is that? It's a bit niche, isn't it? It's a bit specialist. It's not really that specialist. No? No, I'll tell you why. Because plants will grow in every single site and situation on the planet. Yeah, that old right plant, right place thing really does apply. And we live on an island and we're next door to another island and surrounding those islands are smaller islands and they're all green. Ish. <laughs> and it's plants that make them green. When I was a kid, we used to go, if the weather was really good, we at the weekends we'd go down to a place called British Bay, which was a really beautiful sandy beach down in Wicklow and the thing that defined that beach to me were the dunes and dunes you might see in Malibu or in County Wicklow and what are dunes made of? Grasses, wavy grasses, grasses that move in the wind. It was very very textural. Uh, I just loved that very simple landscape but to think what those grasses were growing in later when I went to college I found out that it was marron grass Hmm. and it's a grass that 
use and kind of evolved in those sort of situations and is used to keep the island together. It stabilises everything, really. It that. stops erosion. Yeah, it has very, very deep roots. That stuff goes pretty much down into the middle of the dune. Just grown through sand. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? So there are plants that will grow everywhere. And even if you don't live on the coast, even if it's just a bit windy where you live, if you're in a tar block and you want to garden on the roof or on a balcony, or if you're on an exposed hillside, coastal gardening will give you plenty of tips on how to go about it. What would be your number one tip? <sighs> Build a shelter belt. Okay. And what could that consist of? Well, yeah. anything that is has a tough outer leaf so something like a sea holly something that an unfriendly plant a sea holly wouldn't make much of a barrier though it's only about a foot tall <laughs> yeah scrap that yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe a New Zealand flax a sea, a sea holly. no I hate New Zealand flax <laughs> no not even in that context because it's a really tough leathery yeah, but plant but you see what it's done to Ackle Island do you think it's ruined it yeah Is it, it's not that invasive well, Gunnera is invasive, and that works really well by the sea, fortunately or unfortunately, you could say. So something like O'Leria would be good. Uh, is there not a bigger plant that's called a sea holly also? You're thinking thistles. And the sea holly, I think of as a ringium or, yeah, like a thistle, blue-leaved or blue-flowered thing, really incredible, spiky leaves. So not one of the, the spiky osmantuses that is called a sea Possibly. Holly. There might be, yeah, one or, or the O'Leria's that are... So f- off. Uh, you can't say that on the radio. <laughs> Um, (laughs) There might be What sort of expertise is that? There might be Well, let's confirm this with our friend uh, Google As Jack in the shop in Monkstown We always say he's powered by Google So Um, (laughs) So we'll be powered by it too See, Holly Hold on I'm Googling Yeah, you're right if anyone is to put into a search engine, see holly, you will find that it is a lovely blue small plant and nothing like dermot. You wouldn't use sea holly as a shelter belt, but you should use lots of plants as shelter belts in a coastal garden. And that's the point. You need to create a sheltered area that you can then grow the slightly more interesting things. Plants What's another good search engine? Is there another one that might give alternative answers now? Yeah, if you do the one for Russia... Uh, they filter it quite heavily and <laughs> or <laughs> uh, so he is right but you know what I mean I do I do um, what about silvery leaf things and hairy plants and all that that's important isn't it when you're by the sea yeah because any plant that's covered in millions of tiny hairs the one of the big reasons for those hairs existing is to cut down on water loss mm-hmm. and they do this thing of protecting the plant so low growing ones like lamb's ear Yep. Our big ones like Senecios. They're all kind of designed to be tough and adapted to growing in situations like that. And they can take some of that salt spray too. Some of them, it's kind of a protective layer. Which but we're them. talking about really kind of tall plants with this idea of creating barriers. There is another way of gardening if you're on the coast. Derek Jarman's garden. Oh yeah, now that was the other side of the scale, wasn't it? So yeah. it's in Dungeness and this guy was an avant-garde filmmaker and pop video maker and general all-around amazing artist. And it's like a he, nuclear power plant or something, wasn't by it? By a nuclear power plant in Dungeness. Yeah. Yeah. A really weird On the Kent setting. Coast. Yeah. So he contracted HIV AIDS at a time there was no cure for it and he took himself off to this shack painted in tar that were in the most inhospitable conditions where the storms were just wild 
absolutely wild. It was like Kansas, like tornadoes coming over. And he knew he was going through some really shit times. And he would walk along the beach observing what would grow naturally and he'd look, go to local garden centres where they would have the knowledge of what would grow naturally. So things like little seedlings. And he'd pick up little kind of drip, bits of driftwood and whatever and he created a miniature landscape using these type of sedums, echeverias, you name it um, Icelandic poppies and whatever and he planted them and he observed how they would fight the elements and how they would thrive in those I suppose in the hope reflecting the fight that he was going through yeah, and it's a funny garden in that there's very little in terms of structure, nothing probably taller than about four foot tall in the garden in terms of plants or structure, anything. He hated yeah. Gardener's World magazine and TV programme because he used to watch it and look at the pictures in the magazine and he would regard the plants as spoilt children, overfed, overwatered, overcolourful. And his garden was none of that, but it was a little bit of magic. And became an iconic garden. They wrote a book with photographs by Howard Suley, Derek Sherman's garden, and it's magnificent that it's been saved for the British nation. I think he used to go around in the locality too and pick up plants that were growing naturally and move them into the garden. I think he got stopped once by a bunch of uh, students from one of the big universities and he basically told them uh, where to go. <laughs> he was a very you know, opinionated and he was doing his own thing. He was gardening in the way he wanted to. Paul's very polite, isn't he? Well, he wouldn't use the word German. Well, case. he told the students to f*** off, basically. Paul's not so polite. And I'm... <laughs> uh, I, I have to... I, it was in his book, and if you read his book, it's a very good short gardening book. I think you said it's one of your favourite gardening books. It's an amazing gardening book. Yeah, yeah, well worth reading. It's a very short... Because it's a simple. non-traditional garden, and it shows kind of independent thought. And it does depict struggle, struggle against the elements Which and his own personal struggle. Is exactly what coastal gardening is. You're battling, you know, gardening is always battling against nature. But in coastal gardens, you're battling to the extreme because you're battling the wind, the salt, the rain, everything else, as well as all the normal challenges that you get faced in a garden. But it's still an absolutely incredible place to garden. And of course, the kind of payoff is you often get the most fantastic views and you get to live very close to the sea and you get seaweed. The challenge with those fantastic views, of course, whenever you open up a view, you're leaving your garden exposed. Yeah. So it's creating that barrier, allowing a microclimate, um, a micro ecosystem to oh, evolve sorry. beyond the barrier, but opening views for that glint of the sea. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the sort of challenge to get your garden looking great, but also allowing you to see the landscape beyond. So it's all about careful plant selection using local suppliers growing things like osmantas and formium and oleria gorse yeah fuchsias work quite well they get battered but that's the other thing gardening by the coast doesn't mean you're going to have pristine chelsea flower show standard plants you're going to have plants that are a little rough around the edges they're going to have you know brown patches they're going to lose a bit of leaf they're going to look a bit shit at times of the year but the payoff is you know you'll have gorgeous weather and they will recover back in the summertime and they'll go back and do what they need to do and the advice would be to keep it as natural looking as possible I think yeah yeah you'll learn pretty soon what grows and what doesn't and look around you that's always the advice we give when we go to any garden is see what your neighbours are growing see what's growing in the hedgerows see what's happening in the locality because if they're growing chances are you'll be able to grow them 
And yeah, you can try other things, but you know, there's often a reason why those other plants aren't growing there because simply they just unfortunately won't. If you want trees, now this is really important because people do tend to want a little bit of height and if they establish the shelter belt, they'll put in small trees with the hope that they will establish, they'll get used to this idea of the root rock plant them very, very young. Trees like pines? Yeah, Scots pine are great. Um, I really love them. They're a really architectural tree, a bit gnarly, not prissy and perfect but a really cool tree and that would probably be the number one hawthorns are the other one which are great and you often see them growing at a right angle you know windswept wind pruned yeah yeah um evergreen oak can be used also and they have that nice silvery effect yeah yeah probably won't look as amazing as it would up in you know the suburbs of dublin but still a useful plant there in north county dublin in hot you often see things like sycamore growing en masse yeah, coastal areas. it's a bit of a meh plant, isn't it? But it works. It's a bit of a meh plant, but in winter, because of that wind pruning, it can be very, very sculptural. And in May time, when it comes out, it looks amazing. Uh, we have a couple at home in Carlow, and I don't like them, but when they come out at first, there's that lime green burst of colour early in the year. It looks fantastic, but they're a little bit of a weedy tree, so be careful because they seed everywhere. Other plants that will adapt or have adapted well, it tends to be a lot of New Zealand plants, isn't it? Things like hebes. Yeah, I suppose New Zealand is an island and, you know, there's a lot of coasts. So hebes are great, formiums, New Zealand flax is great, pittosporums, which come from that neck of the woods, are all pretty good and adaptable. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, Escalonia is a very common one. A couple of problems with that with black spots and things, but that's a great flowering hedge for the coastal kind of garden. Um, And the other one that you see everywhere in coastal regions is O'Leria traversiae. Yeah, and with good reason too. Uh, it's just one of those plants, evergreen, silvery kind of foliage and able to withstand all of that. So it's all fine and well talking about this. But let's see how Peter did it. And it's an amazing story because Peter started, you know that phrase, craggy island, you think of Father Ted, she started on a craggy peninsula. There was nothing. Let's have a look. That's cheesy. So cheesy. Cut that out. It suited you perfectly. I'm leaving that in. Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. We're in Ballanskelligs in County Kerry. Now, Ballanskelligs is off the beaten track. It is, well, it's just off, I think, the wild Atlantic way. And it's the last town in Ireland, could we say it's the last town in Ireland? Next stop America, it feels like here. And it's famous really because it overlooks the Skelligs, those amazing rocks that the monks used to live on, barren rocks and they used to live on back whenever that... Wasn't it Star Wars though, which is more cool? In recent times it (laughs) became prominent through Star Wars. And I've been coming here for more, well, 25, 30 years I suppose. Um, It was a family thing initially and then... I started on this adventure of bringing a, planning a garden for the Chelsea Flower Show. So in 1995, two months before my first Chelsea Flower Show, I hadn't a penny, had no sponsor, I had no nothing. I needed plants, so I decided to come down to a friend's house in Ballinskelligs and literally dig up any plant that I found in bogs, in forests, in people's gardens to build my collection of plants. And one day, when I was just arrived back in the house I was staying in from digging up I was lugging out bags I remember they were Irish fertilizer industry white plastic bags I was lugging them out of the car filled with these plants putting them in a courtyard behind me and some blonde bombshell pulled up 
the driveway, driving a Chelsea tractor, uh, tractor and out stopped this Sloan Ranger, and her name was Peter. You remember that, Peter? <laughs> I remember that, Dermot. Um, I'm taking issue with the name Sloan Ranger, but um, I'm originally from Yorkshire, but I did live near Sloan Square. So, um, <laughs> well, you did live near Sloan Square, and you did hang with that sort of set, and you'd had this extraordinary career all over the world and in London. You were there at the start of CNN. You worked in advertising. You got married, and you found yourself in the wilds of Kerry. Yes, what a juxtaposition. I uh, came over sort of in a Chanel suit. And um, John had also told me that it was sort of tropical, that, you know, it was so warm because of the Gulf Stream, blah, blah. So I came over virtually with bikinis, shorts, <laughs> white tops, you know, <laughs> not a... And then, so of course, it was started raining. I had nothing to wear. Well, there's an element of truth in the whole fact that, you know, there is a microclimate here. We are in the Gulf Stream, but not uh, quite bikini weather around here, is it? And it, it is glorious. We're sitting in a courtyard at Peter's house now, an enclosed courtyard. If you look up, it's just a blue sky. The air is completely still and planted in the courtyard are Dixonias and Cordelines. There's a, uh, loads of pots and it is heaven. You could be anywhere in the world. It is lush, it is green, it's absolutely beautiful. But Peter, when you came here, you came to a large house that was perched on the edge of land, on the Atlantic Ocean. Yes, it was actually just bare, bare headland. Um, and it was an old farmhouse that was beginning to be extended. Um, and there was just not even a bent tree. There was no trees. There were no birds. There was um, just a cuckoo. Um, and it was absolutely uh, barren, I think is the word. And you always had a grow for gardening, didn't you? There was something about growing, whether it was fruit, vegetables, you liked exotic plants. Did you look at this place and decide immediately, I have to create a garden here, or how did the process begin? I think it had started earlier, as you said, I was always gardening and always bringing in um, uh, sort of cacti and things from outside to inside um, and vegetable gardening, collecting potatoes, growing potatoes, growing veg. But um, yes, then Miles Chalice's book came out in the late 80s. Um, what was it called? Hardy Exotics? Or I think it was Exotic Gardening in Cooler Climates. And it just got my imagination. And I thought, wow, this is the way to live in the rainforest. This is fantastic. And when you moved here, was that your first thought? Or was it just like, what am I doing on the edge of the world sort of a thing? <laughs> well, you know, I had been told I could grow my banana plants. So I was feeling confident that we could do something once we got at the shelter belt. So, yeah, the, the shock um, was going to be mitigated by living in a rainforest. So, but to create a, a rainforest in this place, so if we paint the picture of this place, it is stunningly beautiful it's not bothered by too many tourists because as I say it is just off the beaten track um, there's a community that live down here when the weather is good it's amazing when the weather is bad describe it describe the conditions it's um, epic is the word I'd use because actually when the water comes at you at the window it doesn't go down it goes up the velocity of the wind is so strong. And, you know, you get little vortexes that come off Bolas Head and we've got many, many trees. We've got sort of over 500 Scots pines. But you didn't then. But you didn't then. 
No, we didn't have a single tree. So, um, you know, wild and windy. And you get these amazing silences as it sort of, uh, we waited for the catastrophe. And catastrophes we got. Um, the bedroom window was sucked out, you know. And I'd look out of the window. And when we did do some planting, I'd see somebody hanging onto a tree. Because <laughs> they, were, they were actually literally parallel because they were being swept off. It was actually that ferocious. So this is ultimate kind of coastal gardening here. Anyone who's listening wondering how to plant in the coastal garden, uh, pay attention. And Paul, you've just recently, I've known this garden right through those years, so I've seen it evolve and develop and become this magical place. You describe what it's like to come in as a kind of first-timer, is it what you'd expect? And then, Peter, will you tell us a story of how the garden was built? Well, driving up here, so as you say, Scots pine, spruce forest coming through, and underneath are these incredible plants of fatsia and astelia, which grow in the darkest of shade because there's pretty much no direct light there and they're growing happily. People are always looking for plants that grow in shade, astelia and fatsia, brilliantly here, and they're getting the salt spray, probably not as much on that part of it, but you know, they're doing really, really well and so they're planted. It's just the driveway coming into the house, but then the other side of the house, the seaside, what do you find? It's a tropical garden, so echiums like in Dermot's own garden and hedicums and myrtles and all of the coastal kind of classics, plus a few other real special things that I suppose drive here because of the shelter belt. Yes, we started with just uh, one drainage ditch and so we got the diggers in and uh, started with that and that went down to a pond um, and then to get the shelter belts up. So we're just digging out banks and banks and banks in 25 acres. Um, and just to start the initial hedge planting with Oleria, some Pittisporum, um, formiums. Did they all go in as young plants? Yes, they did. Uh, those, those went in as young plants. And uh, we put in the, the Scots pines then for shelter as well. And then we started with uh, the hydrangea walk, which was 2,000 hydrangeas. When they went in as young plants, what happened? It must have been like a lunar landscape with these just twigs sticking up out of the ground. Were you? Did you know that they'd grow? Were you full of hope? Did it seem like a, a silly thing? Or because you had this book and you were taking some advice from established gardeners, did you believe that this would work? I think we're very positive mental attitude. Um, yes, also John Joe Costin was on the design front and he designed the hydrangea walk and uh, with all the colour schemes going and he was quite confident that once you put up the, um, you know, the green windbreak stuff? Well, my goodness, we were teeming with it. We, we had 25 acres of green stuff. That's what it looked like, green stuff and irrigation pipes everywhere and twigs. When you when you say green stuff, what you mean is wooden posts and green netting protecting the plants everywhere. So it must have looked kind of awful for a few years. More than a few years, it looked dreadful. And that's why, um, to my great regret now, we never took any photos. And then I'm think, thinking back to why I didn't. I thought, because it looked absolutely ghastly. You know, you just don't want to take a picture of something that looks so bad. Um, so it wasn't until we got some more exotic stuff uh, from Italy, the nurseries in Italy, Venutri Nursery, where they're sort of, um, some of the plants were 20, 25 years grown, palms. And you said, you just mentioned the figure of 2,000 hydrangeas a few minutes ago. So did you quite literally plant things in hundreds and thousands when you did, 
you know, actually go about planting here? Was that the style? Yes, it was um, <laughs> container loads. So the containers had to get from Italy. They then had to uh, get some very, very tight bends around here. So they had to be transported from the container to a van and the vans came round and then these ended up in the yard, <laughs> had to turn around. And then, of course, you're faced with a sea of 2,000 pots in May where there was generally a drought and you just stood there watering all day. But that was just the start of it, never mind the planting and the, and the pipes and all the rest of it. And did you learn very fast what would grow and what wouldn't grow? Yes, we had a, a sort of agave americana. Um, I never thought that would do any good as desert plant, a few desert plants. And actually, it seemed to do quite well. Uh, the rain, it was pouring, you know, it was so wet and the humidity, um, and it did absolutely fine. So I think once that was sort of established and growing and we got a few bouteas and um, uh, palm trees in and they were thriving, actually... Um, there was a lot of hope and also a lot of Chilean plants, uh, the same um, type of plants that grow over here. So you could, uh, it's a similar climate. So yes, you then began to think, well, actually, this might work. And how many people would you have had when those container loads were coming? How many people would you have had helping you plant? We had a team of eight and some porter cabins at the top and massive tanks. And it was a, a fantastic exercise. And then after the planting, they had to do the, the walls. So walling 25 acres of different rooms was quite a job. And how long did this primary planting go on? It went on for uh, uh, 10 years. So that was just, that, that was the diggers. That was doing the banks, that was putting the planting in, that was doing what we call the amphitheater, which is by the beach, which is um, uh, you know, a rock formation. We did water fills, we dug the lakes out, put the liners in, got ponds with plugs. Um, it was an extraordinary 10 year. You're beginning to paint a picture of the place here too. I mean, there's pretty much a private cove beach area down at the bottom of the garden, isn't there as well? Yes, there is. So that's absolutely lovely. So the amphitheatre is basically a planted wall um, and some massive uh, boulders as steps that you can go down and go swimming. Um, it's a lovely area, seafront. You don't have much help here working the gardens now. You had a lot of help establishing the gardens many years ago but now you gardeners with the help of one more yes with the help of morris who's absolutely brilliant he sort of um keeps everything clean keeps the brambles down um tries to keep the gunner in check which is the tincture is one hell of a job but we do and uh yes i do sort of propagation and greenhouse and uh planning so we're a good team but a very small one i think at this age so we've been speaking in this the stillness of this enclosed courtyard but I think at this stage it'd be nice for a little trundle through the garden so we're, we're at the is it the front of the house Peter? this is the front of the house yeah and we have a hint of the sea in the distance a bit of headland there but really what we're seeing is foliage, palms, cordelines, echiums, and the garden draws you in with a pathway straight away. And the thing, is, you just said it, Peter, a minute ago, you really have to look up here because into the skyline are just the most amazing pyramids of echiums and cordeline cabbage palms, all sorts of things as you look up. This is something else. Uh, this is great. You have to push your way through the garden here. The echiums 
are all over the pot and Dermot is ahead taking photographs. Peter, you can't get through the pathways. What's, uh, describe what's spilling over into the pot. I don't let anybody near my Moulinbeckia because it was cut down for years and I love it to sprawl. I think it's so sculptural, it goes up trees, it gives that tropical feeling. I uh, absolutely love it. And then the Fiscalaria on the left are there because nobody actually wants to take them out with their bare hands. So they've grown because it's <laughs> such a job to actually get them out without being lacerated. The garden is kind of lazy in a way. Very, very grow. much lazy. And I like that sort of Vietnamese uh, overgrown um, temple vibe where things are all growing up around each other. I think it just gives a very special atmosphere. Does it remind you of your plant hunting days, Paul? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the type of garden that I would enter with a machete. Uh, that's the kind of... I love that style of garden, you know, where you have to push your way. had to do a limbo dance underneath those echiums to get through. The bees are buzzing everywhere, as I say, blue skies. And these yuccas, are they in flower? Uh, yes, they are. Brachymoides, um, I think pronunciation is probably not great. But yes, we'll go further down into the deepest depths and... Uh, uh, see if we can find some lost um, trees, actually, that we have not found for about five years. Or gardeners, there's probably a few of them in the <laughs> in the depths of the air. Let's push on to another area. I can't remember. I love this. It's always a sign of a real gardener when you walk the paths and there's clippings of things that have been pruned and not tidied up. This is a real garden. That is so... You think I'm snobby. That was the snobbiest bloody thing I've ever heard. A real garden. Well, it is. Anybody who tries gardening is a real garden. I agree. No, but anyone who actually gardens... Yeah, but it's not looking pristine. It is, you know, it's a working garden. It's not just... Look at these babies. They must be 20 foot tall and they're getting battered by the wind. Echium pinata. What's the common name for echium? Do they get common name? Yes, isn't it a viper's gloss? Viper's yeah. burglass is the yes. cu- native, which is a small thing, but these are the big, tall Canary Island ones, which that's are... That's right, they're the enormous ones. So I think that's the snow tower. Um, oh, that's right. The yes, snow yes, tower. the snow tower. And, and the dandelion tree behind. Sanchez. Fruticosa. Oh, absolutely I love, love those. He hates it, but then he's a snob. Oh, no, no and I had I, them as a present for you, Dermot, as well. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, you're getting those. Um, they are fantastic. They grow so fast. They are also like something out of a children's book. They're triffids, aren't they? Yes, they just pop they up. The they, just, foliage. Um, and the, I mean, the flowers are a bit meh, but it's the foliage. They look exactly like dandelions, but it's like a, it is a tree dandelion. They're absolutely good value. Yes, lovely. <laughs> but look at the end of this pathway, what I've said, a xanteria. That's yeah. incredible. So this is from Australia, from the deserts of Australia. Yes, it's right up uh, where the sort of Aboriginal um, lands are. Um, how it survives in the sort of semi-shade here, in the sopping wet climate, I have no idea, but it does. Is this extreme gardening? <laughs> I think it's extreme. I think when you have to hang on to a tree just before you go over the edge, it's definitely extreme. <laughs> and Peter, uh, Peter, as we go down through the garden, it's almost we're going down chicanes. It's like being in the south of France, the way those roads creep up the mountains on the Riviera. That's the way your path goes. And all of a sudden we're onto another one and I see a sweet gum. I love those. Uh, sweet gum eucalyptus, uh, which everyone knows as eucalyptus oil. Uh, do you know which one that is? There's lots and lots of different eucalyptus. I do. It's on the sign down there, but I've temporarily <laughs> forgotten it. <laughs> <laughs> 
lovely. And we're drawn on by, is that a liquid amber? Yes. Wow. Look at that. A liquid amber, which has a very kind of tender leaf, which would be pulled to shrubs. And past a sumac. I've never seen a sumac look so good. Yes. How did that survive? Like, this is happy as Larry. This is one of the surprises as well. It um, doesn't seem to be upset by um, gale force winds. It looks a little bit stunt, like shorter though than it probably should be because it's probably getting whacked by the wind. I'd know? say it's like, sort of wind pruned. Yeah, bonsai nearly by the wind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and underneath it, you have a cloud of agapanthus, not in flower at the moment, but that must be some vision. Yes, yeah, and that's another. Good. That's a really great doer over here. If you're if in doubt, put agabanthus in. That's a general rule, is it? Look at this Cordelan stricta from Australia. It, that is something I would imagine seeing in a garden in Brazil. It's like the type of plants that Roberto Berlin Marx would do. It's so graphic in terms of its overall shape and individual rosettes. It is wonderful. And there's another one over here that's doing equally well. Um, wow. They're very, very beautiful. I, you know, I think they're actually specimen tree for for um, Ireland really. I don't know many people growing them. Let's push on. And now we're walking into what is your actual shelter belt, so the Scots Pine. <laughs> this is the area we actually call Armageddon and I try and uh, bring people swiftly, swiftly through and divert their attention to the right. Okay, let's jog. <laughs> Dermot has just summoned us to the Hydrangea Walk. Hydrangeas, you associate with suburban gardens. You you associate them with kind of bright, open, sunny, well-drained positions. But I have never seen such a dramatic display. But I have a video that I'm going to post in association with this podcast. It goes on forever. And these hydrangeas, it's called a hydrangea walk, and it just blossoms and blossoms and blossoms and it is the most dramatic sight that you will ever see in an Irish garden. Yes it is absolutely uh, spectacular I think mainly because of the colour and the scale um, it's just the sheer number there were 2678 planted. Wow yeah. you're joking yeah whose idea? Uh, that was John Joe Coston's drawing and it was his idea and I hope he could visualise this because it is actually amazing. Why a hydrangea walk? I think you'd have to ask him because I don't really like hydrangeas. I hate to say that when we're going down here because once you've planted them en masse and you see the impact, I mean, you're sold. But as plants, I find them a bit blousy. So I'm probably not the first person to be the best fan of that idea, but... Now it's done. It's absolutely spectacular. And everybody loves hydrangeas. They're that plant that everyone asks us about. They always want to know. It's just one of those plants that people associate, particularly with Irish gardens, but it's just everyone loves hydrangeas. And if, well, wait, wait till you post that picture, Dermot, because this well, is look, incredible. It goes on and on and on. And the really delight is there's a payoff at the end of this walk. So you kind of float through the garden. These hydrangeas float up like clouds, reaching about three metres tall because they're planted on a bit of a bank. They love a damp situation. An awful lot of these are blues and purples. When they're in flower, it is the most amazing set. And then you come down to the end to almost a hydrangea amphitheatre, and then you see the sea. It is magical. 
So we've reached, I suppose, what is the end of the garden because we are at the sea with the coastal and the craggy outcrops, the fields beyond. Your garden would have been like those bare fields just 30 years ago. Yes, it was exactly the same. Not a single tree and just rock. It's astonishing. Uh, the achievement, yeah. if, if you love gardens, is absolutely astonishing. The other thing that I found with this garden is you have no idea until you come to the end the scale of it because you've had to build this series of shelter belts providing protection for the next level of planting the next level all the way up that hill but look it's a paradise in Kerry and I have to say you know we never actually had much soil this is another issue uh, when you see Gardener's World or some of those programs they just dig their spade in and then they plant the plant and it's all deep and loamy we had to plant with a pickaxe. So we had people, eight people planting with pickaxes because it's so stony and so poor, the soil. And look what's come out of it. So you had the benefit of this help with eight people planting, especially during in the early years. But Peter, you're very much a hands-on gardener yourself. Yes, I mean, I'm absolutely passionate about gardening. So I love the propagation. I love the greenhouse. I love um, all, everything about it. It never fails to amaze me when a seed pops up it's like a miracle so you never get over that and you wouldn't be a stranger to a pickaxe <laughs> actually i try and delegate nowadays <laughs> dirt with derma gavin and paul smith a go loud original go loud, go loud, go loud. Okay, i need paul. to hear this aiden is, I don't know why are right. we on yeah okay I've... aiden has just said Here's, here's an interesting fact for you guys. <laughs> and then she started on this thing, according to the 1890 census. No, what? according to the 2016 census, but five years ago. <laughs> so this is an official figure. I'm not just making this up. 1.9 million people in Ireland live within five kilometres of the coast. That's a lot of people. Should they're all in Dublin? Well, that's the obvious <laughs> <laughs> Or Cork, but or Limerick, or Galway, or Sligo. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, nobody <laughs> in Sligo, come on. The East Coast is a very different kettle of fish to the West Coast. Very different, because yeah. there's a garden that you like in Rosslare. Yeah, well, we talked about it on the way up here. Kelly's Garden in the Hotel in Rosslare, which is a really well-known hotel in Ireland. And they have a really nice coastal garden right on the beach. And they grow some amazing plants there. With beautiful lawns sweeping down to the sea. Cosmias and agapanthus and all those things that people can grow, you know, by the coast. And people associate with their summer holidays. But you'd never be able to do that in on the West Coast. Well, it's challenging, isn't it? Because you've got a totally different climate, a lot wetter to start with. Yeah, different uh, soil, different everything. We're, do you remember we we were down in Kerry and a woman from a hotel came out to say, "Oh, I want my I've no money. I want my garden done, and I want your imagine I've no money. Uh, I bought this. I've no money. money." Yeah, I don't think she had a lot of money by the time. And she said, "I don't know what will grow here." And then she told us that it used to be a croquet lawn. But it had the most amazing. And Charlie Chaplin used to play croquet, but she'd no money. <laughs> But the garden, it didn't matter. It was an old croquet lawn, so it was a level patch of grass, but it had the most amazing orchid collection in it. It was just as a wildflower meadow by the coast. It was kind of, you know, not a lot had to be done to it in some respects. Not orchids, but no money. Yeah. <laughs> so have you any coastal questions this week? No. But what we do have are questions in from a few different people, as ever. And the first one I love. Please, can you ask Dormit? D U A R M U I D. And Paul, if I can turf over stingy nettles in my garden, 
are, should I dig them up? And this is from Rob in County Clare. Technically, you probably could turf over them because they will not survive a lawnmower. Yeah, a lot of these plants won't take the regular cutting that a lawnmower brings and a lawn brings. So technically, yeah, but I guess they could still pop through and you don't want stinging nettles on your lawn, even if they're cut. Yeah, and nettles are so easy to dig out. Yeah, they're one of the really satisfying plants. Oh, really satisfying because they form the stringy root. And once you get one, if you're wearing gloves, once you get one. Mind you, your your leg got nettled last night. Well, your garden is a (laughs) bit of a (laughs) A minefield. Biodiversity haven. And if you wear shorts, which I often do in the summertime and go into your garden, you have to be careful. You're not allowed to wear shorts in our shop. Uh, Are we not? No. Oh, that policy's changed again. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, uh, nettles are a bit of a problem in the garden, so watch out for them, particularly in the lawn. Uh, The other thing, nettles, okay, obviously in the lawn you don't want them, but they're a great habitat for things like butterflies. Butterflies and caterpillars particularly uh, need nettles. It's one of the main kind of food sources for those things. So uh, in the right place, nettles, while they're horrible. Nettles are also funny because they're one of the first plants that you will learn to identify as a child. It's You know, most people don't care or know anything about plants, but that's one of those plants that as a kid you'll be taught to know about because, by God, when you jump into a patch of them, you know about it. And they're also hugely, you didn't want to know any of this, Rob, but (laughs) (laughs) usually nutritious if you want to make a soup for them for yourself or for your plants. Yeah, yeah. So actually, Rob, I would move the lawn and (laughs) (laughs) leave the nettles. Okay, we've another question here from Paul. We've inherited a large country garden that is largely lawn with a few trees. We'd love to encourage more wildlife and wondering what can be done, keeping in mind that we have a young, busy family to look after, so not much time for gardening. This is great. Yeah, and the great thing about it is you don't have to do a whole lot. That's Just let point. it grow. You know, yeah. cut, the, let the lawn grow. Let In areas, let it grow. Just let it grow. Yeah, I mean, cut patches. There's a song there, isn't there? Let it grow, let it grow, don't give it. Oh, yeah. So well, It's probably cut, copyrighted. <laughs> cut swathes of pathways. Mow the lawn neatly in some areas. Where you need it. Where you need it. Yeah. Uh, let a lot of it just grow into meadow. It doesn't matter. You don't have to plant. So you you know, see what will grow. The soil is a seed bank. So God knows what will come up. It will look great until midsummer. And then you just have to come in with a trimmer or a side if you're really, really technical. A side is brilliant. It's one of those really satisfying things to watch and just chop it all down and leave it. Take it like hay, you know, a traditional hay meadow you can do that with. You can plant more trees. You've already said you have a few trees. So, you know, more trees, a couple of big flowering shrubs are always good. But yeah, in general, the least you do, the less you do to a garden like that, the more you will get out of it and the more benefit you will give to wildlife. And so cut this suede of a curved pathway through the lawn. It'll give the kids an area to explore. And then cut little circular openings, little uh, dens in it. And that will be, you know, great places for them to play house and to have fun and to observe nature going on all around them. Yep, and the final thing I would say there is add bulbs. So early in the year, there doesn't tend to be as much, you know, wildflowers and flowers out. So bulbs are great. As many. As much? As many. As many. Is that better English? Or gooder <laughs> English? I don't know why you're looking at it. I <laughs> dare you. Uh, okay, well, it would be a great idea if you wanted to, around the trees, in the autumn time, get dried bulbs of daffodils, maybe not snowdrops, but of all of these things, bluebells, and plant them under the trees, and that will give you early flowers in the garden to encourage a bit more wildlife and give you some colour in the garden, too. Why not snowdrops? Because not a woodland? 
uh, they don't like to be planted in dry bulb form. They're better dug as they are growing in the green, as it's called. So dig your snowdrops just after they finish flowering if you want to move them about. It tends to work a bit better. So this is very funny. I was sent a book to review that's been published in <laughs> September. <laughs> yeah. And um, reading through the book, and it's a very personal story about a couple who built a garden. And they're going through a very, very tough time in their own lives, through lockdown, through illness, through whatever. And they're looking at this garden month by month. And I start quoting some snowdrop expert, your man. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> Because I thought that Paul said to don't move them until the autumn or spring, something like that. Somebody's <laughs> listening, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> it's working. Uh, and finally, our last question of the day oh, this is, is one definitely for you. Um, well, and it's also interesting because I know you're very passionate about these guys. Uh, so it's hi. I'm thinking of moving my strawberry plants into a glass house next year. Will I still get fruit if the bees can't get to them to pollinate them? And bees, pollinators, all these things are so topical. And we've spoke about how, you know, the whole thing is getting out there. People are beginning to realise the importance of, you know, not cutting your lawn, adding a couple of wildflowers to your garden and encouraging pollinators and wildlife as much as possible. Uh, The answer to that question is if your strawberries are in the glasshouse, they will need to be pollinated by something. And if you close the doors of your glasshouse all through the day, they won't actually get anything in there to pollinate them. So ideally leave them open. And if there aren't many bees around at the time they flower, because they flower earlier when they're inside underneath heat, you might have to go with a soft paintbrush and actually, you know, think like a bee. It's amazing. Some plants get pollinated by using a feather duster. Yeah, but that's only because the bee population is so low that they can't get pollinated naturally. And this is why bees are so important. If we didn't have bees, we wouldn't have things like strawberries or raspberries or all these fruit crops because they need, uh, you know, the action of the bee taking pollen from all the different plants and moving around then from plant to plant to actually fertilise the... uh, And just last week I was out in a soft fruit farm and they have taken to planting wildflowers all the way around. It was unbelievable and the beehives and everything that there. I was out with Keelings because I was in the, and doing in a rewilding campaign with them it was astonishing a lot of those places will actually buy in boxes of bees at time when they're flowering because the bees will then go around and I'm not messing our producers here looking at us thinking these lads are making this one up we're not like you Mr. can Burns buy a box. Yes, yeah, it's released the hounds. It's open a flap and it's a <laughs> and the whole glasshouse gets you know covered in bees and the bees go around it. They think it's Christmas because everything is flowering. They have lots of food and the fruit producers are happy because they get all of their crops pollinated. Works for everyone. Ah, they're a great bunch of lads. Yeah. <laughs> Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. So I've left the others, they're still out in the sea and I'm not waiting for them to come back. Um, I might catch up with them in a bit, but I've sat into a quiet corner here where all the rocks have been battered. You can hear the sea beating up against them. It's covered in seaweed, which uh, also reminds me, seaweed is an absolutely brilliant fertiliser. It's used now in lots of organic fertiliser. It's full of minerals and nutrients and all sorts of things and for years anyone that farm by the coast would have used it to improve the land. And it's a great resource. And you can see plenty of it. There's all sorts of sea kelps. And I don't know the difference between any seaweed, um, really. But really, really cool to see it. And you can, if you live near the sea, I think you need to get permission from the council to harvest it. So do check that before you do it. But you can make brilliant 
uh, it can make a brilliant addition to your compost heap. Um, usually wash it of salt first, but it's great stuff. And if not sure, you can buy lots of products that contain seaweed because it's full of so many different good things. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the sound of the sea while I wait for those other two mad things to come back. Can't actually see them. I wonder if they've been caught out and dragged out. Oh no, oh, here they are. Here they are. One of these days, Paul, I'll persuade you to get in. I hope you enjoyed Peter's garden. You can check out that video of her amazing hydrangea walk on Instagram. And next week, we'll be telling you all about our garden festival. Our festival taking place near Peter's garden in Ballinskellix. In the meantime, don't forget you can contact us with any of your gardening questions. See you next week.